Section thirty nine of the Life of Mozart, Volume One by Otto Jahn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Mozart by Otto Jahn, Section thirty nine, Chapter seventeen, Part one. The Palatinate Academy of Science, founded in seventeen sixty three, encouraged historical and scientific research collections of pictures and engravings, and an exhibition of plaster casts from the antique, at that time the only and much thought-of collection of the kind in Germany, served, in connection with an academy, to encourage the formative arts. And a German society, founded in Mannheim by the elector in 1775, proved the desire of its members to take their share in the new impulse which German literature had then received. Klopstock's presence in this year had not been without its influence. Not content with native authors— such as Gemmingen, Klein, Dahlberg, the painter Müller, the elector sought, but in vain, to attract acknowledged celebrities, such as Lessing and Weiland. His zealous cooperation was given to the plan of founding a German drama in the place of the usual French one. The National Theatre was built, and efforts were made to retain Lessing as a dramatist and Eckhoff as an actor. When this failed, the engagement of Marchand secured them at least a first-rate actor. But music was incontestably the peculiar province of Mannheim, the paradise of musicians. Here, too, patriotic feeling was supreme. Original German operas took the place of the grand Italian opera, with its appendage of translated comic opera, generally borrowed from the French. The performances of the Seiler Company of Actors, which had come to Weimar in the autumn of 1771 in the place of the Koch Company, suggested to Weiland the idea of a grand, serious German opera, in addition to the operettas, which had met with so much success. His Alcestes was intended as an important step in this direction, as is proved by his Letters on the German Opera of Alcestes, which, by their comparison of himself with Euripides, called forth Goethe's burlesque. His opera met with ready acknowledgment, but at the same time with severe and deserved blame. It was thought to be too evidently fashioned after Metastasio's pattern, both in plan and treatment, and to be wanting in dramatic interest, true passion, and lively characteristic. The public found the opera tedious and trivial, and took just umbrage at the conception of Hercules as a virtuous humdrum citizen. Weiland found in Schweitzer an ideal composer, who identified himself with the poet, who could be silent when the poet wished to speak alone, but who hastened to aid him at need with all the resources of musical art, a composer, too, who thought more of producing a true impression on the mind of his hearers than of flattering their ears, inciting their curiosity, or even adhering too closely to the mechanical rules of his art. Weiland was not content with placing Schweitzer on a level with the best Italian composers. In a letter to Klein, he speaks of Gluck's Alceste as a divine work, but does not hesitate to declare Schweitzer's composition to be the best that had ever been heard of the kind. Schweitzer's music was in fact much applauded, and he was judged to have accomplished more than the poet. His efforts after a true and forcible musical expression of emotion, and after originality, are worthy of all praise, and phrases here and there, particularly in the accompanied recitative, are of charming effect, while the orchestra is carefully treated, and not at all after the usual manner of Italian opera. On the other hand, he has been justly blamed for his slavish adherence to the old form of the aria, with da capo, middle passage, bravura passages, and ritomelo. He is unequal, too, and his effects are all those of detail. What is wanting is genius, original power of creation, which forms details into one great whole, and produces something altogether new and complete. This was felt by Zelter and by Mozart, who wrote to his father that the best part of Schweitzer's melancholy Alceste, besides the beginnings, middles, and endings of some of the songs, was the beginning of the recitative, O Jugendzeit, 
and the worst, together with the greater part of the opera, was the overture. This consists of two movements, an adagio and a fugue, which are both unimportant and commonplace. Alceste was first performed in Weimar on May 28, 1773, and frequently repeated, always with the greatest success. This was also the case in Gotha and Frankfurt, and on August 13, 1775, Karl Theodor produced the opera with great brilliancy at Schweitzingen. The success was great, and it was considered as marking an epoch that a German opera written by a German poet, composed by a German musician, and sung by German artists, should be produced successfully by a German prince. In the following summer, Weiland received a commission to write a new opera, which Schweitzer was to compose under his immediate direction. The way being once cleared, it was easy to take further steps in the same direction. The elector hit upon the idea of representing scenes from the national history in German musical dramas. Professor Anton Klein, formerly a Jesuit, and always one of the most zealous supporters of the patriotic struggle then proceeding, wrote for this purpose Gunther von Schwarzberg, which was composed by Holzbauer and performed on January 5th in the magnificent opera house, with all the expenses guaranteed. Schubart had anticipated with joy the glorious revolution in taste, and the applause was great, although the success was not so deep and lasting as might have been expected. The critics found much in the text at which to take exception. Weiland shrank from speaking in the Mercury about this so-called opera, for fear lest, absurd as it might appear, his criticism might be taken for envy. An evident effort is made to give the work a deeper tone than one of mere patriotic sentiment, but in spite of the exalted emotion and the passion of the words and music, and of all that could be done in the way of scenic accessories, the opera was too wanting in dramatic treatment and characterization to take very deep root. The phraseology is an imitation of Klopstock, but the effort after force and originality is so clumsily made that violence contempt is justified. Of the music, it was said by the minister Hompesch that the predominant feeling and ideas were neither French nor Italian but genuinely German. Schubart praised its mixture of German feeling and foreign grace, and other critics spoke of its stamp of genius and its gentle grace. Mozart, who saw the opera the day after his arrival at Mannheim, wrote to his father, November 16, 1777. Holtzbauer's music is very fine, far too good for the poetry. I am amazed at the spirit of so old a man as Holtzbauer, for you would not believe the amount of fire in his music. The force and animation of Holtzbauer's music are still apparent, though it is wanting in elevation and true musical sentiment. He has not attained to original dramatic characterization except in single touches, more especially in the recitatives. He never deviates from the customary Italian form, but the adaptation of this form to German song was in itself considered a remarkable innovation. The most distinguished vocalists, male and female, of the Mannheim opera were, thanks to Holtzbauer's excellent school of music, almost all Germans. Among them was Dorothea Wendling, née Spumi, 1737 to 1811. Quote, the German Melpomene of Mannheim's Golden Age, unquote, who excited universal admiration by her perfect and expressive singing. According to Weiland, she surpassed even Mara, and he found in her his ideal of song as the language of the mind and the heart, every note being the living expression of the purest and most ardent emotion, and the whole song a continuous thread of beauty. Her beauty, Heinz saw in her countenance all that was caressing, soft, and feminine, combined with the glow and animation of a passionate nature, and her excellent acting, elevated her performances to a very high point. Her sister-in-law, Elizabeth Auguste Venling, née Sarzelli, 1746-1786, though less famous and hindered by continued ill health, was nevertheless a praiseworthy singer. While Francisca Danzi, 1756-1791, married afterwards to the oboist Lebrun, was an artist of the first rank, in her beauty and the compass of her voice, as well as in her thorough musical cultivation, 
At the time of Mozart's visit to Mannheim, she was in London on leave of absence. But the fame of these youthful singers was far surpassed by that of the now elderly tenor Anton Raff. He was born in 1714 at the village of Holzem, not far from Bonn, and was educated at the Jesuit seminary in Bonn. He had a beautiful voice, and the ease with which he sang by ear made it a great labor to him to learn his notes. The elector Clemens August, who heard him sing in church, provided for his education as a singer, and gave him a salary of two hundred dollars. After causing him to study a part in an oratorio, the elector took him to Munich, where he was engaged by Ferrandini to appear in opera. This led to his going to study at Bologna under Bemaki, from whose severe school he came forth as one of the finest tenor singers of the century. He sang in 1738 at Florence at the wedding of Maria Teresa, left Italy in 1742 to return to Bonn, where his salary was raised to 750 florins, and sang at different German courts. In 1749 he performed in Jomeli's Didone at Vienna, to Metastasio's great satisfaction. After a short stay in Italy, he repaired in 1752 to Lisbon for three years, and from thence in 1755 to Madrid, where he lived in close friendship with his musical director, Farinelli. In 1759 they went together to Naples. Here, it is said, his singing made so deep an impression on the Princess Belmonte Pignatelli as to cure her of a deep melancholy into which she had been thrown by the death of her husband. On his return to Germany in 1770, the elector Karl Theodor besought him to enter his service, on which Raff modestly declared that he should esteem himself happy if the elector would be content with the small remnant of his powers which was left to him. His voice was of the finest tenor quality that could be heard, from the deepest to the highest notes, even, clear, and full. With a perfect mastery of the art of song displaying itself in his extraordinary power of singing, at sight, and of varying and introducing cadenzas, he combined a feeling delivery that seemed but an echo of his own good heart, and a clear deliberate judgment on things musical. Added to all this, his enunciation was so distinct that even in the largest hall not a syllable was lost. When Mozart first heard him in Gunther von Schwarzberg, his chief impression was that of an old man's failing strength. He writes, November 8, 1777, Herr Roff sang his four songs, and about 450 incidental bars, in such a manner as to show that it is want of voice which makes it so bad unless one reminds oneself all the time that it is Raff, the old and celebrated tenor, who is singing, one cannot help laughing. As for myself, if I had not known it was Raff, I should have died of laughing. As it was, I took out my handkerchief and blew my nose. He never was, they tell me, anything of an actor. He should only be heard, not seen. His presence is not at all good. In the opera he has to die, singing a long, long, slow air. And he died with a smiling mouth, his voice falling so at the end as to be quite inaudible. I was sitting in the orchestra next to Venling, the flute-player, and I remarked that it was unnatural to expect a man to go on singing till he fell down dead. "'Never mind,' said I. "'A little patience, and it will soon be over.' "'I think it will,' said he, and laughed. After hearing him oftener, Mozart did more justice to Raff's artistic skill, but he always thought his style wanting in simplicity. In a letter from Paris, June 12, 1778, he pronounces a more detailed judgment, true to his convictions, yet anxious not to wrong the excellent man of whom he was extremely fond. At his debut in the Concert Spirituel, here he sang Bach's Schena, Non so donde viene, which is my favorite song. I never heard him sing it before, and he pleased me. His style suits the song, but the style in itself, that of the Bernacchi school, is not at all to my taste. There is too much in it of cantabile. I grant that when he was younger and in his prime the effect must have been sometimes quite startling. I like it, too, but there is too much of it. It is often ludicrous. What really pleases me is his singing of certain little things andantino, which he does in his own style. 
everything in its place. I imagine that his forte was bravura singing, which gives him still, in spite of age, a good chest and a long breath. His voice is fine and very pleasant. If I shut my eyes when he is singing, I hear considerable resemblance to Meissner's. Only Roth's voice is the pleasanter of the two. Meissner, as you know, has the bad habit of endeavoring to make his voice tremble. Roth never does this. He cannot bear it. But, as far as true cantabile is concerned, I like Meissner better than Roth, though he, too, according to my judgment, makes too much of it. In bravura passages and roulades, and in his good distinct utterance, Roth bears off the palm. All who saw Roth on the stage pronounced him to be no actor, but only a singer. In private he preserved the serenity and moderation of an estimable and genuinely pious character. His moral conduct was faultless, his opinions earnest and severe. He had occasional fits of passion, but was for the most part good-humoured and benevolent, a true and self-denying friend. No wonder that Mozart conceived a strong and lasting attachment to such a man as this. The most distinguished tenor singer in Mannheim, after Raff, was his pupil Franz Hartig, born 1750. Church music in Mannheim did not stand on the same high level as the opera. Schubart complains that little attention was paid to the true church style, and that the old masses were despised and the new ones introduced in the most effeminate and mincing operatic style. Even Holtzbauer's sacred compositions were far inferior to his operas. Mozart heard a mass by Holtzbauer, written twenty-six years ago but very good, as he writes to his father, November 4, 1777. He writes well, in good church style, with fine passages for the voices and instruments. Notwithstanding, he was far from pleased with the Mannheim church music on the whole, and did not care, as he writes in the same letter, to have one of his own masses performed there. Why? On account of their brevity. No, for everything here is short. On account of their church style? Not at all. But only because, under present circumstances, it is necessary to write principally for the instruments, since nothing more wretched than the vocal department can be conceived. Six soprani, six alti, six tenori, and six bassi to twenty violins and twelve basses stand just in the proportion of zero to one, do they not, Herr Bullinger? They have only two male sopranos, and both old. Just dying out. The soprano prefers singing the alto part, because his upper notes are gone. The few boys that they have are wretched, and the tenors and basses are like singers at a funeral. The organ was still worse provided for, and Mozart pulls out the full measure of his scorn on the two court organists. They have two organists here, for whose sake alone it would be worth taking the journey to Mannheim. I had a good opportunity of hearing them, for it is the custom here to omit the Benedictus, and for the organist to go on playing instead, the first time I heard the second organist, and the next time the first. But I have a better opinion of the second than of the first. When I heard him, I asked, who is at the organ? Our second organist. He plays wretchedly. When I heard the other, I asked, who is that? Our first organist. He plays more wretchedly still. I suppose if they were shaken up together, the result would be something worse still. It makes one die of laughing to see them. The second goes to the organ like a child to the mud. He shows his trade in his face. The first wears spectacles. I stood at the organ and watched him for the sake of instruction. He lifts his hands high up at every note. His tour de force is the use of the sext stop, but he oftener uses the quint or the octave stop. He often playfully lets fall the right hand, and plays only with the left. In a word, he does as he likes. He is so far completely master of his instrument. But Mannheim was distinguished most particularly for its instrumental music, the orchestra being unanimously considered the finest in Europe. It was more numerous and better appointed, especially as to wind instruments, than was customary at the time. It was here that Mozart first became acquainted with the clarinet as an orchestral instrument. Oh, if we only had clarinetti, he writes, December 3rd, 1778, you cannot think what a splendid effect a symphony makes with flutes, oboes, and clarinets. Bernie had only one fault to find, a fault common to all orchestras of the day, that is, the occasionally defective intonation of the wind instruments. 
The Mannheim Orchestra was not only well-appointed and strong, but uniform and certain in execution, with delicate gradations of tone, until then unknown. Piano and forte were rendered in the most varied degrees. Crescendo and diminuendo were first invented at Mannheim, and for a long time other orchestras made no attempt at imitation. Other means, too, such as the skillful blending of the wind and stringed instruments, were made the most of to produce a well-arranged, finely gradationed whole. The excellence of the Mannheim Orchestra, whose performances excited as much admiration among contemporaries as those of the Paris Orchestra under Habeneck's conductorship in our own time, gained for it the honor of taking a regular share in the elector's concerts. The band contained some of the first artists and virtuosi of the day, such as Kanabich, Toschke, Kramer, Stamitz, and Franzel among the violins, Wendling as a flute-player, Lebrun and Ram as oboists, Ritter as bassoonist, and Lang as horn-player. But its fame rested chiefly on the excellent discipline of the orchestra, which, among so many first-rate artists, it was no easy task to maintain. The Kapellmeister at the time of Mozart's visit was Christian Kanabich, 1731-1798, who had succeeded Stamitz in 1775. His compositions were doubtless overrated by his contemporaries, but he was admirable as a solo violinist, and still better as an orchestral leader, besides being an excellent teacher. The majority of the violinists in the Mannheim Orchestra had issued from his school, and to this was mainly owing the uniformity of their execution and delivery. Kanabich, who was more of an organizer than an originator, had experimented with every condition and device for producing instrumental effects, and he laid special stress on technical perfection of execution, in order to ensure good tutti players. Uniting, as he did, intelligence and a genius for direction to, quote, a true German heart, unquote, and a moral and temperate life, he possessed the confidence and esteem of his musicians, and was therefore the better able to bring their performances to the highest excellence. End of section 39, chapter 17, part 1.